putting a pause on the Colossians series till after Easter. So today we'll put a pause on that. In March, we'll have a series that's going to do deal with Jesus, money, and your heart. And we're going to explore some of the affections of our heart with the stuff of earth, with Jesus. And then we'll be right up to Easter. It's incredible. Easter is April 9th. And so we'll be moving along uh, towards that. But I'm looking forward, uh, attention to this idea of do not let anyone judge you. And then the second idea is do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, we need to remember that the Apostle Paul has a vision of people in Christ and then responding to him, and that the work and power of God in their life is actually producing a life worthy of God. Do you remember the prayer in Colossians 1 that we have been praying? Some of you have continued in that. You've let me know. You know that prayer thing that you created from the Scripture? I'm still praying it. And it's such a fantastic prayer that Paul had been praying that they would live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power so that they have endurance and patience, and then giving joyful thanks, a life that flows with thanksgiving. He says this should be what happens to a person who is in Christ, that being in Christ actually yields and produces this kind of effect in our lives. Now, I think that for many of us, there's three kinds of searches that, that help us get taken up by those who judge, defraud, and bind us up with the rules of the world. The first is that we really have a a search for acceptance. We want to be accepted. 
We want to be acceptable. The second is that we truly do look for experiences. Our generation is very much about go and have an experience. Go to university so that you have an experience. Learn something and make a career, a life for yourself, right? But we also enter into worship sometimes, even as people of faith in Christ, looking for an experience with God. That's good, but it also creates a little danger zone for us. And the third thing is that we're having a search for goodness. We're having a search for what is a morally acceptable person. And our generation and our setting in the academy and in our workplaces is often creating a vision of what a morally acceptable person is. And we're looking for that as well. Because it flips right back around to the other thing, that a morally acceptable person is accepted in some kind of setting. I mean, as Jesus says, there's honor even among thieves. That there's a, a way of life and living that becomes accepted and celebrated. And so the first one, there in verse 14, Paul says, do not let anyone judge you. Now that word judge, it's most often affiliated closely with the idea of condemnation. Don't let anyone condemn you. And notice what he says. Don't let anyone condemn you in regard to what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. He's saying, look, you followers of Jesus are going to experience the pointing finger. Go ahead, try it. Point the finger. Point it at me. Don't condemn anyone else. The pointing finger. Paul's saying, listen, you're going to experience the pointing finger of judgment, of condemnation, where someone looks at you and says, well, why aren't you doing that? I mean, Jesus experienced this. Why would we expect anything else? Jesus experienced it because people pointed at him and said, well, you're a glutton and you hang out with sinners. Why aren't you like John the Baptist? You know, John was, was more of an, uh, one who retreated, who, who got away from it all, who was always fasting. And so, but people also critiqued John, pointed the finger at John, and said, look at him, he's so harsh on himself, and look at what he's doing. It's our fear of judgment that pushes us away from the call of Jesus in our lives. That when Jesus calls us to something, we're worried about the applause and acceptance of others rather than the applause of heaven and the acceptance that's been settled in Christ. And Paul is aware of this that they're surrounded in a setting with all kinds of religious festivals and experiences and stories. And that's the interesting thing about religious festivals is that they're often associated with story. 
The Sabbath is associated with the creation story. These festivals of new moon and new year were established with some sense of God's hand in creation and some kind of story. It's Alasdair Maktir, who's a philosopher, an Anglophone philosopher, who's well known for his work after virtue. And he says, I cannot answer the question, what ought I to do, unless I first answer the question, of which story am I a part? I'll read it again. It's proper English. He was very, very grammatically correct here. Catch it. I cannot answer the question, what ought I to do, unless I first answer the question, of which story am I a part of? What story are you a part of? Religious rites and rituals and stories are meant to connect you with a story that you're to be a part of. My friend who became a follower of Jesus and then returned to Taiwan and faced the reality of her father's death and all of the ritual practices that were associated with his death of one who was not a Christian created a confrontation for her. What story am I a part of? What story am I living? And my participation in these rituals creates a conflict and a place of judgment and the pointing finger because I know I'm not part of that story. For some of you, you're like, I have no idea about that. My family is completely irreligious. They just point the finger anyway. <laughs> right? Because now I'm the one who actually finds meaning in Christmas or meaning in Lent for some of you or meaning in Easter or meaning in Pentecost. I find meaning in the Sabbath and having a Sabbath rest that others do not. Don't let the fear of condemnation keep you from the calling of the Lord. The second word there was defraud or disqualified. I think the NIV calls it disqualified, doesn't it? Verse 13. Eighteen, thank you. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. This word here of disqualified is very closely related to the idea of to defraud someone, to cheat someone. And so, in a sense, Paul is saying, don't let someone else's spiritual experience and their great vision and dream and sense of what they have had cheat you out of your own calling with Jesus. Don't let the pursuit of spiritual experience 
cheat you out of knowing and connecting to Jesus Christ himself. The angels were not made to be worshipped. But apparently, there were some kind of folk religion or folk setting here that uplifted the work of angels such that they were worshiping them. Now, most of you don't have friends who worship angels. Right? So this, this is a hard bridge to cross. But we do have those who say in your pursuit of spiritual experience, if you haven't had this, you're missing out. And so we can become susceptible at times to being cheated from actually having a gospel-shaped life in our pursuit of spiritual experience. So we just have to be careful with it. Do you know, we read the passage from Acts chapter 10 where both Cornelius and Peter had had a spiritual experience. They had had a vision. And in the vision, they were given instructions. So they followed through with them. They even invited others into it. It was their spiritual experience. And it created an intersection in their lives. And then there was a spiritual experience that the Spirit came and they spoke in tongues. And it became a sign to Peter and his friends that they had to receive them, that God was not playing favorites. But now there is nothing that goes on to say that every follower and believer of Jesus must also speak in tongues or you're missing out on really having Christ in your life. Be careful of that, of where the spiritual experiences of others have been treated now as a tap that they can turn on and off for you. When they do that, they will cheat you, defraud you from your true inheritance in Christ. And that is a faith in him and his completed work. We can talk further about it. But the third thing here is that they were in search of goodness, holiness, and godliness. In fact, Paul was in search of that as well. But he was not in search of it as something that they needed to do to get God's favor. He was in search of it as an outflowing and a response of knowing him. That may seem very subtle, but it is a very subtle difference. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The question before them was, how do you actually become a good person and live a good life? 
And the story that we're a part of in Christ says there is one good person who has lived a good life, and he has lived it for us. And now his life is in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How is this life in you going to become an outward expression? Will it become an outward expression by developing a list of rules for your life? Do not touch. Do not eat. Do not handle. See no evil. Hear no evil. Speak no evil. Is it a rule-based life that brings you into the fullness of Jesus? We're not sure, are we? <laughs> We're not sure. We're not sure because sometimes we think, oh, I just, that person just needs some more rules in their life. But maybe they need more of the Redeemer in their life. Maybe we need, I need more of the Redeemer in my life, not more rules in my life. But here's the strange thing about rules is that when you live your life by the negative rules, do you know what they make you focus on? Don't eat that chocolate cake. You know, my mom would make a cake, and it had the most beautiful chocolate icing in it. It's a flat cake, so wonderful. It's like this giant iced brownie. Oh, my goodness. She would make it, and she'd say, now, don't touch that cake. Now, what did I want to do? Touch that cake. I mean, Paul, even later writing about the law, says the law stirred up in us what we wanted and became for us a goad, a provocateur of the desires that were here in us. But it was by its tutorship that we actually became aware that we actually are sinners and are in need of a true and genuine grace, that we needed a Savior. But the holy life of Jesus is not going to be provoked and brought about in our life with a list of don'ts and should'ves and ought-tos. It's actually going to be generated in our life by gazing on Jesus. This is chapter 3. And then because of the response of gazing on the love of Jesus, we put off the old nature and put on the new. But that's for the next sermon. The order matters. The order matters here. And it is possible to get caught up in a life of church such that we begin to be bound up with rules rather than released and freed by grace. This is the invitation of Jesus. He is not inviting you to a self-designed religiosity. Our self-designed religiosity always says, do something, do something. Do something to get God to like you more. Do something to get God to love you more. Do something to make yourself acceptable to God. But it's our Redeemer who says, it's done. It's done. It's finished.
And that's the invitation. It's to come to Jesus who's done it. To have a gospel-shaped life means that we come down into the reality of who we are and we invite him into it and say, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. And then trust that he will provide the lift. It is by spiritual disciplines sometimes that we align our heart with that movement of coming down into the reality of life in this body and then lifting our eyes up to Jesus who died on a cross, was buried for us, but was raised again so that we might have new life. This is the movement of Christ. If there is to be any religion in Christianity, it is this. We keep looking to Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be poured out in our lives. That means we actually die to ourselves. Paul says, since you have been buried, since you died with Christ, since you died with Christ, you'll now live with Christ. This is the move that we make. We come down to reality. This is why sometimes we talk about kneeling. Kneeling is one of those acts of worship to just come down and say, oh, I'm, I'm before you. I worship you. I align my life with you. I humbly receive anything that you would give me. Do you know, humility is a really important move in our lives. The danger sometimes for us as Christians is we, we're like the thief who stole a car and then lectured the parent. Do you know this story? It happened in Oregon in 2021. There was a mother who pulled up to um, a store, and she just jumped out of, the store, out, of, out of the car in a hurry and ran into the store to make a purchase. In the meantime, a, a thief saw her car, and it was running. And he thought no one was in it. So he got in and drove away. He drove away with her four-year-old child in the back seat. Yeah. She came out. He wasn't there. Her child was gone. The car was gone. The thief recognized at some point, there is someone in this car with me. <laughs> and turned around and came back and found the mother standing on the sidewalk. And he rolled down the window and began to lecture her about being such a terrible parent. <laughs> You're such a terrible parent. Why did you leave the car running and leave your child in the car? I want you to get your child out of the car. And then proceeded to continue to lecture about how to be a better parent. And then drove away with the car. Friends, we are in danger of this kind of thing that Paul says. 
that in Christian fellowship, instead of lifting up the greatness and glory of Christ in our own lives and coming down and being humble about how we also need a lesson, not just in parenting, but personhood. We're like the thief lecturing someone who made a mistake in a moment. Instead of the thief who was next to Jesus on a cross and said, oh, Jesus, today, remember me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that lectures just aren't going to change our lives, typically. We pray for more of your grace in our life. We pray that as we come now to the Lord's Supper, that you would remind us that you came down and that you took up flesh so that you might accomplish for us what we could never do for ourselves. That you would find the remedy for sin. That you would find the redemption from the powers of death and of darkness. And that you would set us free. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you give us a sense of honesty as a fellowship with you that we would not lose connection to you, but instead we would be connected to you, our head, our Lord, the one who is Lord of all and who gave his life for us. So as we come to this supper, we pray that you would give us humility and honesty the confidence of being accepted by you, the confidence of your goodness in our lives, and trust that in that mix, you will bring about an experience of forgiveness and of grace. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together, and those helping with the Lord's